Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. I imagine you might have heard that phrase a number of times before. Perhaps you've even thought that phrase to yourself. And experiencing a, a flash of optimism, perhaps, in, in the midst of some rather difficult and, and challenging times. A businessman sees his profit margin getting smaller, but somehow he, he hopes that a new supplier or, or additional customers will be able to, to bring about a light at, at the end of that tunnel of the struggles that he is currently facing. Those of you who are, are in school, may have felt at the time that you would never survive your last round of tests before Christmas break, but when you were finally left with just one more remaining, you began to see the light at the end of the tunnel and have some hope that you would make it through. Our sermon text today from the prophet Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 is a promise of a light at the end of the tunnel. It's more than just an expectation that things will soon get better, more than just a sigh of relief that the worst is finally over. No, it promises real light, the light of the glory of God himself manifested or personified in Jesus Christ. So the Epiphany season is sometimes called a season of light. We think about the the light of that miraculous star that guided the Magi, the wise men from the east, to find the place where the newborn king of the Jews was staying with his parents. And of course, that light symbolized the true light of the world, that that baby, the savior of the world, really is. Today, we find comfort and hope in the truth that God dispels the darkness that we have brought upon ourselves because of our sins, our our repeated rebellion and, and, and disobedience against God's commandments. God dispels that darkness of sin from our lives by giving us the light of his Son, Jesus, our Savior. Now, it's one thing to see or even to expect to see light at the end of a tunnel. But what if you didn't even have that hope? What if no matter how the tunnel twisted and turned, perhaps if you've ever been in a a cave cavern system, no matter how much that tunnel twisted and turned, what if you knew that at the end of that twisting tunnel, you would find it sealed, stopped up, with no way to get out, with no light, absolutely none. How hopeless your condition would be. Really, that's kind of the situation in which God's people found themselves at the time in which God's prophet Isaiah was speaking to them. Isaiah had just finished chastising the people of Israel, especially the godless king Ahaz, for disobeying God and not trusting in God to guard and protect them. God, through his prophet Isaiah, warned the people that if they did not repent and if they did not turn from their rebellious ways of worshiping false gods and disobeying God's commands, then the, the terrible Assyrian empire would come and take them captive and, and torture and kill many others of them. But instead of repenting and turning to God and trusting only in God, King Ahaz made an alliance with uh, their previous archenemy, Syria, in the hope that together Israel and Syria could withstand that attack of the Assyrian empire. 
Yet even in spite of that political alliance, there was still no true feeling of security. Confusion reigned supreme. We read in chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, as Isaiah, uh, God through Isaiah describes that situation or describes the, the ultimate uh, confusion and helplessness that would soon come upon the people. They will pass through the land distressed and starving. But when this takes place and they are starving, they will be frustrated and they will curse their king and their God. They will turn their faces upward and then they will look down to the ground. But I tell you, they will see only distress, darkness, and the gloom that brings anguish. They will be banished into thick darkness. But in spite of that stark warning, people still refused to face the fact that their real problems were not political problems. Their greatest need wasn't for a, a defense treaty with an ally who would help them to fight against this invading army. No, instead the real problem was that collectively, as a people, as a nation, they had forsaken the Lord, the one true God. And so the political and the social darkness that they found themselves in at that time resulted ultimately from the spiritual darkness in each of their hearts into which they had all collectively fallen. In the first chapter of Isaiah's book of prophecy, he lamented how terrible it will be for that sinful nation, for a people loaded with guilt, offspring who act wickedly, children who are corrupt, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have deserted Him and turned back. Why do you keep earning more beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? Your whole head is wounded. Your whole heart is weak. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is nothing healthy but only wounds, welts, and open sores. Of course, it's one thing for us to look at the mess that someone else is in or, or that that whole nation of Israel was in some uh, 700 or so years ago. Quite another to see our own mess, the mess that we are in spiritually. Now for us now, here uh, in the middle end of January, the memories of our recent Christmas celebrations are not too distant. For the most part, I imagine that Those were happy memories for you. But how much of the old life has still remained the same? As people, we continue to have very much the same concerns as we had before those Christmas celebrations. Our job, our health, the pressure of business and work, the strains perhaps in our family relationships. Perhaps during Christmas time, a a temporary truce prevailed in some of those things. Marriage and family conflicts, perhaps, were put on hold. But now, for many people, everything is coming apart again. Counseling loads are once more ratcheting back up. Divorce lawyers are now back in court. For a world under sin, it's darkness and gloom as usual. But for us, as for ancient Israel, it's important to know the cause of our darkness. The real problem, the real dark tunnel that we find ourselves in is sin. Our own individual personal sin and collectively our sin as a people. It's a lifelong affliction with us, not something that we've just recently contracted. 
And therefore, it's also not something that we can simply shake off by ourselves, by our, our own effort. The fact that sin has become a second nature to us also doesn't mean that we can treat it lightly or that we can just simply acknowledge it as, as a fact of life. The fact that everybody does it, whatever that pet sin, that personal weakness you have might be, that is no excuse for our own sin. Left with our guilt and trapped in our darkness, our future would be as, as bleak and as hopeless as it was for God's people Israel at this time of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Many people today show the same reaction. They curse God, they blame the king, the government, but none of that cursing and blaming really helps resolve the root issue. The dark tunnel of our sin has no light at its end. There is only everlasting darkness, death that never dies, and eternal separation from God, from life, from his love, from everything that is good from him. But thank God that that is only half of the story, the worst half of the story. God's prophet Isaiah in our reading today also brings a message of hope. Light instead of darkness. Life instead of death. And joy instead of gloom. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, There will be no more gloom for the land that was in anguish. And in verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now that promise was general in nature, but the words immediately preceding that promise in verse 2 are very specific. We read also in verse 1, In former times, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he will cause it to be glorious along the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. As we mentioned earlier in our worship service, that northern part of the kingdom of Israel, occupied uh, in in times before Jesus by the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, was viewed very often by many of the Israelite people, the Jewish people, as kind of a back country. And it came to be referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles because uh, over the course of centuries, many of the, the ethnically Israelite Jewish population there had intermarried with non-Jewish people, with Gentile people, a practice that God had forbidden because only at that time, only the Israelites were worshipers of the one true God and, and the people surrounding them worshipped false gods. And so by intermarrying with those people, very often God's people were led astray into worship of, of those false gods, those idols. And then certainly that only increased when the Assyrian Empire conquered that part of the land of Israel and then brought in peoples from many other nations who intermarried with the local people there. The heathen influences were overwhelming. When Assyria attacked and destroyed Israel, that region, the, the northernmost region of Israel, was the first region to be overrun and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And its, its residents quickly surrendered to the Assyrian Emperor Tiglath-Pileser. And so therefore the region was despised by the rest of the people. It was not an area that a devout, God-fearing Jewish person would gladly call their home. But Isaiah promised here, in our, our reading, that special honor would come to this area in the future. 
And in today's Gospel reading in Matthew chapter 4, we see just how that promise was fulfilled. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. When Jesus heard that John was put in prison, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did this to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And on those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The first part of that land that had come under uh, the invasion of the Assyrian Empire, under God's judgment, now became the first part of the land to come under the light of the Savior's preaching and teaching. There in Capernaum and Galilee, Jesus established his home base of his ministry work. There he began to gather his disciples. There he would meet again with them after he rose from the dead and display his glory and his victory over sin and death. The land that had once been in, in darkness of gloom and under an, the control of an enemy empire had now become a land of great joy because of the good news of, of forgiveness and salvation that God promised Savior brought. Light for Capernaum, light for Galilee, and light for us. And that light, of course, is Jesus. We saw the light of Jesus in the celebration of Christmas, just as surely as the shepherds saw the glory and, and light of God shining in Bethlehem's fields when the, the host of, of heavenly angels appeared to them and announced that good news of the Savior's birth. We saw the light in the celebration of, of the Epiphany, just as surely as those wise men from the east saw that miraculous star leading them to Bethlehem, to the place where the Savior Jesus was staying. We have seen and continue to see that light of God's love in the hearing and reading of God's word, which God tells us in Psalm 119 is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we are strengthened by that light again and again as we partake of Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And after we receive Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper, we join together in the song of Simeon, who praised the newborn Christ child as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Glory for your people Israel. We can never emphasize strongly enough that the light dispels our darkness that light is God's light and not our own light. Not only are we hopelessly trapped in our own dark tunnel of sin, but we are also completely devoid of sight by ourselves. We're unable to see a light even if one is shining because of our spiritual blindness apart from Jesus. And for that reason, it wasn't simply enough that God possessed light or that in the person of his son Jesus, God made that light manifest. No, God had to enter the darkness of our sinful hearts and to overcome that darkness with his light. He had to open our eyes, the, the eyes of our hearts, our spiritual sight, so that we could see that light of his love that he was bringing to us. That is what Jesus did for us. To rescue us from darkness, the darkness of sin and, and the judgment of eternal damnation, Jesus had to endure that darkness himself. First, he endured the, the darkness of his mother's womb as the eternal, 
all-powerful Son of God willingly humbled himself and confined himself to Mary's womb. He endured the, the darkness, the humility of that manger bed, uh, the, the lowliest place of birth in a place where animals slept and, and did many other uh, things too, too foul to mention here. He endured the darkness of having to flee the murderous wrath of King Herod and, and to take refuge in Egypt during those earliest years of his life. There was much more, as we know, much worse. Eventually, Jesus succumbed, submitted himself to the darkness of hell itself as he was hanging on the cross, suffering for our sins and the sins of the whole world, being forsaken by God as a result of, of that, those sins of ours that he was bearing. And as he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, he endured the darkness of the tomb in which his lifeless body was placed after he willingly gave up his spirit on the cross. The light of God's love for that brief time had been snuffed out, smothered in darkness. But darkness could not triumph over him. On the third morning, the blazing light broke forth from the tomb. The angel witnesses appeared bright as lightning itself and, and broke the news to those women and then the disciples who came to the tomb. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Through Jesus' death and his victory over death, Jesus has conquered death and darkness and he has brought life and immortality to light. He did this so that you and I and Capernaum and every other town, including our own town and city, Galilee and every other nation of the earth, including our own nation, so that they all may be delivered from darkness and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The result of this life has entered our own life. And that result is that we are delivered from our sins and from the oppression that our sins have caused. Isaiah told God's people, As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Maybe a little hard for us to make the connection there, but just as God defeated Israel's enemy, Midian, and defeated them so powerfully and vividly, that was a demonstration of his power over ruthless oppression. And God's prophet Isaiah says, just as God won that, uh, that total victory over Israel's enemy Midian, he will also, and he has also through Jesus, won the total victory over our spiritual enemies. The devil, our enemy, wants to continue to oppress us with his ruthlessness. He delights in tormenting our consciences and driving us to despair and trying to make us think that we are such terrible sinners that God could not possibly forgive us, that he could not possibly love us. The devil tries to cause us to wallow in darkness and, and to close our eyes to any sign of hope, the light of God's love. But with Jesus having come in the flesh, with Jesus having suffered and died in the flesh and then having risen victoriously over death, we don't need to fear or listen to or believe any of those accusations or lies of the devil. His charges against us are not the last word. The last word 
belongs to God. And that word is not guilty through Jesus, our Savior. Our public defender, Jesus, has pleaded our case before the judgment seat of God the Father, and he has won that victory in that court of God's judgment by pointing to his own life and death on the cross in our place. And so, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The yoke that burdened us, that weighed us down, the, the burden of the guilt of our sins has been totally shattered, totally broken, and it will no more be placed back upon us. And so through Jesus, now instead of gloom and despair, now joy and gladness fill our hearts. As Isaiah writes in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoicing when dividing the plunder. No more living on promises of the future. This blessing from God is for us right now. The harvest is there before the reapers. The plunder is there before the victors. We are forgiven children of our Heavenly Father right now. We are heirs of eternal life right now. We have been rescued from the darkness of sin and the doom of hell right now. There is not only light at the end of the tunnel sometime in the future for us. No, right now we are surrounded by the light of God's love and forgiveness. And so we can walk, we can live each day as children of the light. When we were surrounded by the darkness of sin, anxious over the dimness and uncertainty of the future, we were living in despair. But now, as children of the light, we can confidently make our own the words of the psalm of the day that we sang uh, minutes ago, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? No one. The light has come. We have seen it, and we can live in it forever. Amen.